0: Hey there, listener. Exciting news. You know, today's episode is with Dave Parmenter. We get deep into a conversation about fins. And as I was lamenting the cost of fins and how it hampers my ability to experiment with different shapes, sizes, Dave mentions...
1: Wasn't there there for a while some sort of a Netflix-style thing where you could subscribe and try all these different fins? I would do that. I mean, that's the best thing. When I was a kid, I tried every single thing I could try of course it was simpler back then you know with single fins but
0: right. and as it turns out there is such a company or it's like Netflix was when they actually sent DVDs to your house the company is called fanatic and I reached out to them and actually brokered a deal that benefits you me and them They are a fin rental program that you pay a monthly subscription to use. The plans start at 10 bucks. They send fins to your house. You keep them as long as you want and then you send them back in an envelope that they provide and they send you the next set of fins off your queue. The postage is all covered by your monthly subscription fee. It's truly as simple as that. So you can um, rent as many as you want, as frequently as you want, send them back, use them once, send them back, keep them for six months if you want. They carry all major fin brands and they stock every single product from those companies' product lines. So. Every fin that Futures makes, every fin that FCS makes, every fin that Rainbow Finco makes, Channel Islands, all of them. You just drag and drop the fins on your queue, rearrange them, set your priority. It's super, super simple. It's a tremendous service and value. Uh, I've been using them recently, and I'm a huge fan. So I feel like it's solved a major bottleneck in my surf experience in terms of fin education. So the deal that I brokered is go to fanatic.com and use the promo code podcast. If they ask you which uh, shop you heard about it, you could just put Surf Splendor Podcast. It should auto fill that entry. But again, podcast in the promo code section. And by doing that, you will get your first month free and Surf Splendor will get a kickback from your membership. You win, we win, Fanatic wins. And uh, it's just a really fantastic way to support this show. So, thank you to Fanatic for that offer, and uh, I hope that you enjoy it. All right, without further ado, Dave Parmenter. Welcome back to the show. This is David Scales for the Surf Splendor Network, and today I'm bringing you an episode of Wax On with Dave Parmenter. This is the third appearance of Dave Parmenter on the show, and. Um, Just to give you a super brief introduction from Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing, quote, Dissident American surfer, writer, boardmaker, pro tour competitor in the mid-80s, and uh, once described by Surfer Magazine as the most interesting surfer in the world, end quote. A lot's been written about Dave, and uh, Dave has actually written a lot. And I'm not sure that any of those things are really a comprehensive look at dave or even a comprehensive view from david's viewpoint so i think that this podcast platforms allows for a little bit more detailed exploration and uh, that's why i'm thrilled to have him on the show so often what i wanted to do though is i know you the listener often has more information than i do so i let you guys kind of dictate the topics that were being discussed so questions came directly from you the listener on Instagram and then um, we cover a bit of board design we cover a bit of current culture and getting Dave's thoughts on the wave pool, foiling all that sort of stuff And Dave is someone who's been involved in various incarnations of surf media. So with this being his third appearance, I just wanted to get his thoughts on the medium, uh, what his feedback has been from participating in the podcast. And that's where we begin our conversation. One final note, though, is I need to give a big shout out and a thank you to Libertine Brewery in San Luis Obispo. They allowed us to use their space. They have a private room. They allowed us to use it to record this episode. So Thank you Libertine Brewery. If you're ever in San Luis Obispo, I think they also have a tasting room in Morro Bay, so check those locations out. Without further ado, I hope that you enjoy this episode of Wax on with Dave Parmenter. This is David Scales. I'll be back at the end to sign us off. Thank you. <laughs> You've been involved in multiple types of media, is my point. How do you feel about the podcast? Have you gotten feedback from it? Um,
1: I th- yeah, uh, You've I've, done a few? Yeah, well, quite a bit of feedback. I, I think based on what you've told me, too is that when I do have people writing to me in search of surfboards or the just the open door policy I have for people to ask questions in general is that there seems to be the uh you know, people are pretty happy that they're that we talk about things other than surfing
0: <laughs> oh really yeah that's funny yeah I've gotten a lot of that too for sure um the benefit that I see with it is like I post that Instagram the other day and ask people what do you want to hear about mm-hmm. and there's kind of this immediate response where you can, um, it's more conversational. Whereas I feel like when you write a piece for the Surfer's Journal or whatever, you put it out there and it is your voice, but there's no conversation coming back at you. Or maybe at the most, you'll get an email about it at some point, you know?
1: Yeah, you will. It's a, like it's it's a different media. I, I do enjoy when I'm shaping. I'll listen to some podcasts, like film comments, some really good uh, you know, roundtable discussions of film, film history, modern films. And, and so I see... That when you're talking about films, they're not just it, this isn't just uh, you know like Entertainment Weekly just puff pieces about promoting latest films. They, they almost always take like a social political mm. context. So you're talking about films and politics and, and techniques. So I kind of think that being able to do this with you like this is is a way to kind of leverage just the act of riding a wave into something else about what it means to be a surfer and what our place is in the world you know, post-factual, post-history, you know, post... And
0: (laughs) and in real time, too, like, as it is now versus six months ago when we met, you know? Yeah. I know you spend a lot of time conveying mountains of information to single individuals through email, you know? They ask, reach out and ask you about single fins, and then you'll tell them. Um, So part of my goal here is to make some of that info available to everybody at once, so as to uh, cut out, or cut down, anyway, on your outbound email. So embrace that and know that moving forward sounds great. Um, obviously, I sent that Instagram and I asked people like, "Hey, what do you want to hear Dave talk about?" One of the things that somebody asked about is your Mugatu uh, profile pic on Instagram. They want to know, "quote Is it a simple f- is it simple fandom or is it a metaphor for how you view your role in the surf world?"
1: Uh, End quote. Well, I think that people probably. I remember there were followers of Tom Curran on the tour that would just parse over like 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 you know Hebrew scholars in the Talmud trying to see what music he was listening to what it meant and a lot of times he just he's just listening to whatever came across the transom so there's nothing about it I mean I love the the Zoolander thing I like that that character's pretty classic it fits in with surfing there's a lot of that down in the you know you know the uh, surfware industrial complex down in behind the orange curtain but no reason. Sometimes you just see a funny picture and just with Instagram you just rotate those I think most people do, right? They yeah, just rotate totally. through something and just keep going. It's fun just to change it up.
0: Have you ever used a surfing <laughs> photo as your profile pick?
1: A surfing photo of whom? Or of
0: yourself surfing. Oh
1: no, god, no. It's like <laughs> it's like it's like my surfboards. I sign my name on it. I don't want
0: like Parman or this, DP, all. I, I just I just it's enough already. Just I sign the board. It came up in conversation <laughs> recently on the show is like is it ever acceptable to use a pro uh, a surfing photo of yourself as the profile? Only pic? if
1: it's ironic, maybe. Oh, I mean, if okay. it's like if it shows you just being like almost uh, verging on kook slams or something. Head,
0: a big head. An unflattering surfing picture. It. Yes,
1: I agree with you. I that. wish they would bring back mug of the month. I remember that in the eighties in Surfer.
0: I don't. Well, there was a
1: there was a a bunch of features. I forget what even what it was called. But at the front of the magazine, they had a bunch of it was the loose or not easily categorized bits of you know detritus. from the. But they had a thing called Mug of the Month, and because that was like the era of Flame and Hornbaker and Aaron Chang, they would just get the most unflattering surf pictures, usually water shots, and they would close in on the guy's face, and they all look like they're like having BMs or... It, it's hilarious. I'm bringing it back. You, you I'm making back. a note
0: right now. You wouldn't I believe, believe some might.
1: of the mugs that these guys did—tongues hanging out, puffing cheeks. Just
0: was it in? You
1: said surfer. Surfer, okay. yeah, in the '80s. Yeah, done,
0: dude. I'm yeah. bringing it back on Instagram. I'll credit you with it. Yeah, though. mug of the month. Uh, and you, well, can go them, and get, you can go through
1: it. and get a nice uh, sourdough starter by you know collating some of the old ones and bringing them back.
0: I love that. Um, so couple more questions on Mugatu. Yeah. Did you see Zoolander 2?
1: Yeah, I did, but it, it just seemed flat to me. It's, was it? Yeah. I it, didn't it, actually see it. it, it, it see, some of the criticism was that it was dated, and they just were, were a little bit tone-deaf for the changes that had happened since that last one. And I think the first one came out kind of about the same time as 9-11, and so it yeah. took a while to gain an audience. But, uh, um, you know, just with some of those films like that and... Like Anchorman, they just kind of keep going. A lot of a lot of those comedies, they they make the mistake of the last half hour turning into some action piece or something like a totally you know, you know where it turns into all of a sudden we're Eagles Dare where you assault the fortress and it and it just loot. But these kind of movies, they just kind of keep that that register all the way through that silliness. Yeah, and maybe I don't know. Maybe it's the Will Ferrell or the directors behind them or the way that they write these things or they yeah. write themselves.
0: I loved the idea. That Penelope Cruz was in it. That made me want to see it, but then it got panned by critics, so I never actually saw it. But I'll track it down just to do my due diligence. Yeah, you, won't, you, know.
1: you won't miss anything. It's, it is it is a, it is an oddity. It's a, it's like some of those films. Even like going back and looking at some of the Austin Powers movies, they are they things have moved on since then. They yeah. just they just kind of clink a little bit, like a hollowness. There's a they're still funny, but they're not. I think the f- comedies today they've there's a pace and a register that's that shows those things to be a little bit dated.
0: One thing that a listener pointed out to me at one point was John John Florence's facial hair looks exactly like Mugatu's hair on his head if you flip it upside down. He's got like it's a blonde goatee that only grows on his chin but it on in two points basically coming down with nothing in the middle which is again Mugatu's hair.
1: That's pretty Mugatu. Yeah, yeah it's it looks, pretty
0: amazing. I want to actually get somebody to photoshop it. John John's so hot right now. So hot. (laughs) Um, The other question that came up multiple times is people wanted to hear your account straight from the horse's mouth about the OP Pro when you rode the longboard.
1: Oh, good. Well, I always probably correct me or stop me if I've said it before. People ask why I rode a uh, longboard was that I couldn't find one of those plastic inflatable alligators in time. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that would have been the ideal choice for the conditions? or <laughs> Well. Uh, First of all, there's a CVS across the street now in Huntington. Yeah. They would have had it.
1: Uh, it wasn't what it was meant to be. I mean, it was after the fact, you know, there's a spin on what it means. But really, it was just sitting at the OP Pro the day before, watching my fellow pro surfers get cut down by horrible conditions, going, like, good surfers going out at high tide when there's no waves and it just maybe breaks in that outer bar and then you have to hop all the way in and then come into the shore break and it was pretty disgraceful i mean the kind of surfing it, it bred and i knew that the next day it was going to be the same thing my heat was in the next day were the waves
0: were the waves particularly bad for huntington it was, was
1: particularly it? bad because it was okay. probably after one of those winters where there's a huge longshore trench so there's an outer yeah. bar and a lot of times there was always with you know one of those little glory paths that you could follow in and, and make you know that when length of ride was everything today i don't know you probably just do like some big giant aerial out the back and they don't even need to make the shore break but um, and i'd been brought into pro surfing under the tutelage of ian cairns and peter town and one of the first dictums was first do not be boring and uh, they looked at it coming in as being a performer and you had your props and you had your whole you know ian always kind of modeled themselves after these tennis players or race car drivers that were Bad, you know that people love to hate, kind of. So that, those people seem to have legs. But uh, anyway, the next day I knew it was going to be the same thing when my heat was, and you uh, know I had a notorious like what I you know like a the kind of a surfer that makes easy things look hard, <laughs> instead of the kind of surfing I came out of, which was making hard things look easy. And I just, it, I, my the best analogy here was that I just thought. I'm watching, you know, I'm in the trenches in, in uh, World War I and I'm watching everybody go over in the wire and get cut down, but I said, well, I'm going to at least go over, if I got to go over that, out of the trench and over the barbed wire and get cut down by machine gun fire, I'm going to be wearing a lampshade, for crying out loud. So the next day, it was just, it was just small and it was going to be just predictable and it was going to be dis- very embarrassing and disgraceful, that kind of surfing, and so I had my friend, Craig Komen, go up to Chuck Dent because he worked at Alita that was what up the street then. I said, can you just go get me a longboard? And he brought me this 10-2 big Chuck Dent longboard. And my original thing was just to go out and wear the lampshade. It wasn't really to make a statement. I was going to go out, get one wave, and then grab my shortboard and go out and like hopefully win the heat. So it was just something to liven up the party. And truth be told, Rabbit Bartholomew is one of the MCs, my other friend Carl Weiser and they saw what I was up to and they were just lightened up because it was before it was the midnight DJ. Well, oh, you got to see what Red's going to do. It's like... Yeah. You know, and so it was really just a way to liven up the party. And then it got politicized really fast. Sure. Yeah, you know, so... How do you feel about it getting politicized? Um, well, you can see... Because well, it's not like I didn't get in there and try to help after that. Once it I, became a thing, I mean, probably more people remember that today than they remember who won the contest that year. They I mean, do. You know, yeah, so. I mean,
0: it's a question that's come up, <clears throat> up repeatedly for people who know that I'm going to be talking to you, but... Well, it was done out
1: of the- boredom, and it was done out of showmanship, because I believe that's what being a pro surfer is. It's showmanship. It doesn't... It's Today, it's, it's pure athleticism, I think, and, okay. and uh, acrobatics and whatnot, but back then... It was just this maybe one last kind of dying distress flare.
0: <laughs> but, I, but I feel like even that is a political statement. To even say that, like, I'm going to go out there and, you know, I don't want to be cut down by the gunfire because that's the method that you guys have dictated that we're going to do this by. That is a political statement. Well, it wasn't
1: O.P.'s fault. It wasn't the ASP's fault. Um... There's yeah. not one person you could blame, but it There's is no, what it there, became. But they, you know? but they but I think the, the contest sponsors and I think some of the it was an embarrassment to them and they probably they, they should have been happy. As was my opponent, Richard Dogmarsh, who I looked at he's a great guy. I like love all Australians, but his surfing was opposite to mine. I picked him just like Brad Gerlach had probably picked me before to be to get this kind of rivalry and I welcomed it. When Gerlach would call me out on this and said I surfed a certain way and he did this and he was gonna kick my ass and he, I loved it. The mm. the best heats that you could ever have is when you're when game on like that, and you're totally in that arousal phase of just you don't let a chop go by without doing a threat assessment on it or something. and um, he chose to take it as being something that was you know a humiliation or an insult, and it really wasn't. It's just turning it into theater. It was a boring day, at a boring contest, and I just felt him just go out there and you know wear the lampshade and light and brighten things up.
0: yeah. How do you feel about it now? With I mean, I mean, what year was that? Do you? I think
1: it was about eighty-six or something. I remember yeah. seeing
0: eighty-six yeah, when I read I think about that's it. A long time ago, um,
1: thirty years.
0: So right with thirty years of retrospection and hindsight, how do you feel about that statement now? Do you feel? I mean, it clearly, pro surfing has gone probably even more in that direction than it was in eighty-six in terms of being kind of monotonous and predictable, and like you said, just athletic. Um, do you feel like your state, your statement, your political statement was juvenile? Do you feel like it was justified? Do you have any thoughts about it?
1: Well, it wasn't like I said; it wasn't meant to be a political statement. It was just out of boredom and just wanting to, to, not go out and just surf another heat in anonymity. And you know, it looked like it was one of those like Star Star Trek things where Kirk goes in there and foils a com- computer and the Kobayashi Maru uh, problemers. I mean, I changed the rules. Right. I changed the rules.
0: So are you proud and, of that?
1: No, not proud of it, nor am I ashamed of it. It's just it's something you do as a professional athlete and a performer, and uh, it it got politicized fast, and then so I decided, well, fine. That's they want to politicize it. I'll make it about this. Hmm. It's a great story. But that's really what it was. It was just out of not wanting to go and be boring. Right. Just go out and be you know Dave Parmiter in red with priority and heat. 14 of the quarterfinals or whatever it was and I really thought I was going to get out of the heat I thought well, that would liven things up well I think it just threw the judges for a loop I went out and got, got a short board that I shaped it's one of the first boards I rode in a contest um, and just literally tried to get a handle on the conditions and defeat the opponent
0: I mean, I, was, I don't know what the scores were for that heat, but I was gonna ask, it seems like you could actually make it through that heat because in the judging criteria, there is no limitation on the board that you can ride. But when we look at the World Tour now, everybody's riding a very, very similar board. Even if you saw something as different as a twin fin at J Bay, that person likely wouldn't make the heat because even if they're surfing better for the waves that day, the judges can't quite fit it into the paradigm. So it brings up kind of a larger issue, I think. Do you remember what the scores were, by the way?
1: Well, I think I, think I had like a 2.5 for a, a, like a right-go-left drop-knee turn and then getting on the nose and finishing the wave. You know? so.
0: Which would have been a decent score in a longboard event, though, I'm sure. Yeah, but you can't
1: fault the judges for no. it's just having that kind of spanner thrown in the works. Yeah. I think the judges reflect fashion in surfing. They don't set it. Right. And they usually find, like in my era, it was Tom Curran. They they look at that as being he's the world champion, he's the godhead, and so all the surfing. Uh, what the criterion is is based on, basically that triple print bottom turn and then like the head fake snap kind of thing back then. That was kind of the standard, and then later I believe that the the in the later eighties the criterion was steered by the Australians, <coughs> the hierarchy there to. Um, kind of benefit their uh their potential world or possible world champions there, which were at the time goofy foots. Mm -hmm. So you started to see this heavy emphasis on sticking the board up past vertical on the Mm -hmm. lip. And you do three of those in the critical part of the wave and it's a eight. Right. And it was a lot easier to do backhand. Right. Than forehand. So it changed. So there was all these different things and there's neither good nor bad at the sport changes. It's that's why it's so refreshing to be into distance canoe racing and stand-up racing now because there's no judges you don't have to deal with that it's just you and the claw
0: it's objective yeah objectively judged um or measured anyway by the way i didn't mention it but um the way i have my outline breaking de- broken down for the show is kind of like things that fans want to know pop culture kind of that i'd love to get your commentary on in the surf world and then board design would be the last third of the show um so back to things that fans want to know You dated Lisa Anderson for four years, kind of during the height of her competitive career. They're making a documentary about her life currently. Um, They're in post-production, actually. Did they interview you at all for that? Oh, nobody's contacted me about that, Nobody's contacted you. Um, What did you learn from that relationship?
1: Uh, Well, it was, was, uh, it's hard to say. I don't, I don't, I don't talk about things like that. It's, you know, I don't do kiss and tell. Yeah. So if they
0: had asked I can you... Add, I can
1: evaluate her as a surfer. So, but that's it.
0: Well, if they had asked you to be interviewed for that project, would you have?
1: No, it's not my thing. No. Yeah. Just, I'm, I'm basically here to talk about the... Not about the private life or anything like that. It's just surfing and what goes on around.
0: One thing... That i wanted to ask you to sean in nyc on instagram asks um if you ever have fun it's a silly question but i think it definitely represents a theme that's been recurring whenever i read the comments about you from stuff that interviews that you've done over the years there'll always be a couple comments in the comments section saying dave sounds elitist or pretentious and i'm not sure that he's ever actually enjoying the act of um Have you read that, or are you aware that there is kind of that uh, perception? No, that comes.
1: What would you say? I mean, you could say to somebody about you could look at George Orwell's work, body of work, and just say, Did he ever? Was he a happy person? Did he have fun? No, that's his conscience. There, he's he's not right. He would have been a poet or wrote just naturalistic things about living in the country and you know almost Wordsworthian, but he his conscience drove him otherwise. So, do you have fun? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I find surfing to me is a wilderness pursuit, and it's meant to be done in solitude. Although, w- once again, the, the, the uh, contradiction to that is living in Macau for 20 years, where you're out with every day, there's 75 people in the water, and they've all surfed the waves since childhood, and it's the most crowded break on earth. But, it's, it's a, but that's being, being a part of something instead of being apart from mm-hmm. was a welcome change for me, too. But... Surfing to me is is about getting away from everything.
0: I've talked to people about this um, perception that they have of you and I it's you and I have spent a little bit of time together and I always I was like, you know, I could see why maybe when you read some of the things that he's written that you get that out of it, but my interactions with him, he seems like he's absolutely um, engaged and enjoying not only the act of surfing, but like the conversation about it and all of it. So. Um.
1: Well, I remember once to, to, to probably to answer that question, I could see that th- this whole thing about elitist. Uh, oh, I, remind, I remember there was one so a former world champion, we'll just say that. I remember sitting at the OP Pro one day, probably 30 years ago, <clears throat> this is somebody that's been a world champion and he was made some crack about, oh yeah, Dave, it'd be like someone you wrote about. And it was kind of like a snide remark about how you would criticize everything. And I just felt like, well, here, here's a yellow legal pad. You go write about your experience growing up in Newport Beach at the heart of a city, an urban surfing thing. And then up in the central coast where you're in a wilderness frontier thing. And you talk about your years in the tour. You talk about your years shaping, riding big waves, building surfboards, designing surfboards, learning history. You, when you do that, you you write about it. You know, If that's elitist, fine, but somebody you, know, you can't be ashamed for the, the fact that when I was younger, I was a fanatic and I wanted to learn every single thing I could about surfing and surfboards and more, more than anything is the history. Mm. I wanted to know where we came from and who, the, who were the people. Like, I don't want to fall into that mistake of looking at a surfboard design or a fin or something now and not knowing that that was actually done 40 years ago and it's not just some latest thing that one of the big labels came up with. You've been pretty active in the stand-up, in developing the stand-up. Well, it was us. It was my friends and I were totally responsible for the, for the the sport as we know it, the modern incarnation of the sport, the industry
0: of the stand-up paddleboard.
1: Not just the not just the stand-up surfing, but the but especially the racing, the downwind right. racing. That was 100% a Makaha thing.
0: How do you feel about um, what it's become, or like what the whole movement has become now? Boards kind of being built in mainly built in china and then also well we tried i tried to
1: do it in hawaii back then um, that was our original goal was to try to build them locally and no one would do it the glassers didn't want to know about it hmm. but then came 2008 and then the the stand-up thing had gotten kind of uh, some momentum and the you know the recession or the depression or whatever you want to call it that hit and then it, it kind of basically saved the surf industry and I don't mean just surfboards or wetsuits. I mean everything, like deck pads, graphics, print, print magazine, leashes. Everything just, that just blew up and went everywhere. I mean, we went to the outdoor retailer trade show in Salt Lake City in August of 07. And we'd already been doing it for five years. But that was the first time C4 Waterman went and took it to you know an inland outdoors trade show. And there was no basically nobody there. Hobie had a couple just relished. Um, uh, one-off PU polyester shaped boards and Surftech was probably selling their Manos you know ultra glides which yeah. were meant for something else and but then within a couple of years they had like i think the last couple of years there's like 60 some just board manufacturers at that trade show alone so it went from n- trying to just show explain to people what it is and why we do it to it just this huge industry and it's everywhere
0: this huge tourist industry that Largely exists not, e- not even in the ocean. To be honest, I mean, yeah, well, that I was mean, our
1: original at C4 Waterman. Our intent was that we were going to just make boards and uh, promote it as a fitness thing for inland waterways. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then but then we did we got into the the downwind racing thing and founded that, and that's that's really what's taken off. I don't know about the surfing thing, but I think it's all tapered off. I think it's I think it's kind of so five years ago right now, and everybody's getting into foiling or hydrofoiling or What I'm seeing in the races that I participate in, uh, both here in the mainland and in Hawaii, is that I think that the stand-up, the racing part of it, uh, has been a gateway sport for people to find out about outrigger or prone paddling. And we're seeing a lot more. Like, I think the last Molokai race, in uh, this last July, there was more prone entries than there were before, and the stand-ups are kind of flat.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think they've tapered off.
0: Um do you want to talk about foiling at all you're something that you're just <coughs> getting into now Well, yeah, we
1: started doing it, it about fifteen years ago in Macaw when it was still the the air chair that Laird had developed and I was doing it with Brian Keilana and Melvin Puu and some of the other macaw guys and it was all snowboard boots and these little almost like wakeboards or or kiteboards and it, um, and then we got involved in the stand up thing and kind of drifted out of it. Those guys still foiled and and we Brian and I. And my other partner todd bradley we always knew that the foiling thing was the future it's just that we just didn't have the bandwidth at c4 waterman to go after it and we were just struggling to stay in business and keep and we were cutting trails for everybody else too uh, but it, it, i do think it's a future do you oh yeah well not for the kind of surfing you see on the pro tour or anything but i think that it's the the, the primary thing about it is it spreads people out it's one more thing like you could say what you will about modern longboards or stand-up boards or anything but if used properly it spreads everybody out we're not all crammed into this narrow 10-foot ribbon of shore break where on short boards everybody's spread out and there's and there's uh if you use the hawaii model of all these different tools for different jobs or different moods or different surf then it's one more thing you can do and it just puts you out in in, more into the open ocean or riding waves that nobody else wants Mm because on the foil the Some of the funnest or the best ways to get up and be planing and cover a lot of ground are ways that you couldn't
0: really surf on conventional surfcraft
1: or wouldn't be that fun.
0: Um, Where do you see errors being made in the way that the foil's been developed thus far? We're in the super primary stages and you'd like to get involved. Are there any corrections that you would like to make?
1: Well, I I think that the the board itself is just a lifting surface. And I think about six knots, the board's just you know becomes irrelevant because you're up on the foil so then it's about how e- easy it is to balance the board but i'm not at that learning curve yet where like some of these guys the guys that are doing it that you've seen that are mastering it they're just down to just the least amount of board because all they need to do is just get that foil up and when they do they can stay up longer and even pump and hop out the back get another wave so that's like a whole other thing but my perm- primary interest is for the open ocean downwind racing going out 20, 2025 knot like like getting someday they're going to have a division for the Molokai channel race and I just want to be in on that yeah I don't want to miss out on that I want to be just foiling across the Ka'iwi channel
0: <laughs> yeah do you think that in its ultimate iteration it'll influence fin design in any way for on like an actual surfboard
1: it, yeah it can it's a, it's a totally different thing these are basically almost like model airplanes that are just turned upside down on a post okay and uh I don't think people understood that during the air chair era that you could just stabilize them by moving the lifting wing, the front wings with the, you know, the tail assembly just more apart. So right now you're seeing just like in the stand up or even with surfboards the short versus long is that people are going from one extreme to the other and coming back. But there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, things learned about you know, hydrodynamics which would would might apply to fins fins do different things they're more of a stabilizing thing rather than a lifting thing
0: okay well in regard to fin um fins and board design listeners had a number of different questions would you mind giving me a primer on fins um in 2018 i'm going to dedicate some shows specifically Mm -hmm. to fins because it's something that i'm overwhelmed by there's firstly there's so many fin options on the market like even if it's a shortboard thruster you go to futures and they have like john john has eight models Jordy has a bunch of models like and i don't know what all the differences are between the models so it's something that i want to learn about but then also your advocacy for the single fin appeals to me because it simplifies things it's like rather than having to figure out what these three do i can kind of narrow it down to one and then experiment with that um maybe maybe start with your advocacy for the single fan or I don't well, know where I don't, it's would you not like really an
1: advocacy it's not like I'm a uh, you know it's some sort of protest you know that it, uh, against because I my favorite surfboards are just good old thrusters if they're are they? yeah sure good if I would needed to go out and just really make use of an average typical surf there's nothing just like a nice modern iteration of a classic rusty aki 1985 thruster and that's they're waiting there those boards are waiting there for people to discover because when those get remade and refined they're they're going to just blow everybody's minds because Hmm. that that was the best all-around type of surfboard
0: what about that design do you like and uh, wider wider flatter
1: balanced outline the thin basic like an even rate of thickness through the board like they've rusty's boards are the ones that i do they're very relatively thin they could be two and a quarter thin but the rail feels like two and a half but they don't wafer out volume wise at the nose and tail they kind of hold that and uh, there's a lot of stored energy in that. Uh, like I grew up riding the Lance Collins wave tools and then Rusty's boards later. And that kind of angular boxy rail that we saw in the Brewer Parish era, you know, miniaturized to these kind of modern boards. You can get guys down on two inch thick boards, but the, if you have a, that full rail with a crisp tucked under edge, the board just has so much resistance, but it's sensitive. It's comfortable to paddle on because you've got a flat or a sunken deck. Uh, one of the biggest overlooked things that I, I just cannot believe that we've gotten away from is that the uh, tucked under edge, which started, it came into mass use right at this period when there were still single fins, twin fins, and tri-fins, kind of like the early 80s. That's it. But that was a, a an ingredient that really made a lot of those boards come alive, is it wasn't a hard chine or anything. It was still, a, the, the, you still had that, radius on the bottom part of the rail that went under but way tucked in under there was a little bit of a bead Mm -hmm. and so when you're turning uh you still have a round enough rail where you still the water still sucks around it and you know you have the holding power but there was still release when you're horizontal uh, when you're going down the line and uh that i think shaping (coughs) machines have largely done away with that i think when shaping machines people started uh Shaping boards that uh, they finish off with dragon skin and everything. And if you look at a lot of the top uh, labels for those modern, you know, conventional short boards now, they have these broom handle rails. And a lot of times, the, the uh, radius is uh, there's more of a more roundness, and the, the apex is higher up to the top of the deck than it is in the bottom. It used to be like 70-30 or something, mm-hmm. it's the other way around now. Uh, very submissive. Very, a lot of drag, very, they just very easy. They make a board submissive and easy to do things, hard to fall off on. But they don't have the, they don't have the breakaway edges that just get the thing, you know, and, and push back. I remember when I was in the top 16, about half of the top 16 or half the guys in the top 32 were on Al Merrick's boards and the other half were on Rusty's. And uh, the guys that liked Al's boards didn't, they wanted a board that didn't push back. The guys that really liked uh, Rusty's boards, Aki, Tom Carroll, Mike Burness, they were guys that liked to load up that turn and sink that rail and pop it out, mm. you know, a little bit more drive.
0: Uh, what is the benefit of the flat deck?
1: Well, it's... But with having a flat or even a slightly scooped deck means that you're going to have the the thickest... The, the the thickest part of the board is going to be out on the rail, Got like it. at the apex of the rail, which is, is how you... Like in a modern multi-fin board, you get your speed using the torque and leverage of the fins to kind of keep the board from just sliding ass. And, uh, but by sinking the the rail, hopefully on the rail, and then unweighting and unweighting is how you get that kind of like dribbling or pumping a skateboard thing. But all that, the other boards that have more of a dome deck that's thicker at the center of the board, and then you kind of go rail to rail, but you don't get that that corkiness of having the rail. And also with a rusty type board you had the, the, like I said, the thickness distribution was more even. So if you have a two and a half inch, sorry, two and a quarter or two and three eighths inch middle on a six two, the nose could be, uh, you know, back then it might have been like one one point seven five inch and three quarters, and the tail might have been a little, little thinner. It might have been more of a single fin nose foil, and and that all has, you get a lot of compression out of that. But you have to be a rail surfer. If you're just surfing off your fins and doing tic tacs and then you're probably going to want to ride what everybody else is riding right now, because everything on the modern board is there to enhance the maneuverability.
0: It's um, that board design that you're talking about—that '84 Rusty model. Yeah, yeah, I have one, and I rode it exclusively for about a year. Love, I love that well, but board. Th-
1: yeah, that's a fine design, but the, but it, it, it's not exactly the way the period boards were. They, okay. Yeah, they there there was a little bit more extreme back then.
0: I had another one that I got at a thrift store probably 10 years ago that I think was a Stewart. And I liked that a lot, too. And I would ride it even though it was yellow and it was a beater. I got it for like 20 bucks. I liked that a lot. So the Rusty one appealed to me because it was, you know, um, just a newer, not an updated necessarily design, but a newer construction. Um, And I couldn't get off of it for a year. I loved riding that thing
1: yeah, and that's not looking back and just going, oh things were great back then. It's just it's just me, I'm evaluating like this all these design components, sure. and and thinking, well, how this, these these have the speed and the compression and the and that feeling when you do your first turn on a basic mushy wave that you're like on a jet ski. It mm-hmm. just feels like wow, this mm-hmm. thing's gonna go. The tails, the balance that's the, the template centered fins are clustered just right so they bite there's a there's a sweet spot that you don't have to go looking for the water is sheeting off the rail instead of glugging around it and you just feel like I can go down there I can go way down there and do a roundy or I can go straight up Mm -hmm. and I look at that miss that and think how can I modernize it and also how can I tone down some of the more uh, you know overwhelming or or you know the cruder elements of that design in its period, and offer it to the modern surfer so that they don't instantly react against it.
0: Okay, so back about back to fins. Um, somebody asked a question. I guess Dan Mann had made a comment about fin placement on boards with five fin boxes, and he said <laughs> that the front fins cannot be in the right place for both a quad design and a thruster design. So that idea of having a five um, fin box setup is more an illusion of versatility than it is practical?
1: Well, try try it with six channels and then see how far you get, too. Really? <laughs> try fitting all that in with six channels, not that anybody does it. Well, yeah, I think that's totally right. I've, uh, it's always a compromise. So when I'm doing my uh, my glasser and good friend in Makaha, that's a really good surfer, Kimo Kawaiho. he loves all his boards, regardless of what they are. They're all short, very thin boards. He always does the five-fin, you know, FCS, you know, f- fusion plug thing. And... Uh, it, it is, it's hard to, I usually set the side, I set it like it's going to be a thruster first. I put all the fins on like it's going to be a thruster. And the quad thing is, I think, that's where people go wrong. I think they might not set them with the right space between the front and the rear trailer quad fin and the distance in off the rail. Okay. And then there's the side, the side. the the size of the fins i see a lot of pictures of quad fins and i'm just going oh my god they're towing like 40 cubic board feet of fiber of uh plywood through that i see these enormous quad fins that are in the wrong place and and sure enough when you watch the guy go to catch a wave they're all excited because hey i got this wide-tailed board i'm going to catch this wave i'm not struggling and then they get up and they go the board just stops it's just too much drag
0: yeah yeah the fin boxes themselves i think just add a lot of weight too if not drag directly yeah
1: not to single out any particular maker but yeah they there's some some are more than others some are more than others yeah there's a lot of there's a big footprint some of the some systems don't uh, fit very close to the rail because the the size of the footprint they have Um, but those are i think it'd be hard to say you know with any kind of you know, just accuracy every shaper does it differently and you can't say that there's any right or wrong way it's all cut and try and based on experimentation you would hope that it's based on the surfer shaper or the or the shaper and and the team rider interplay but I don't know a lot of times it's not I think a lot of the stuff out there is hang tag science now it's like whatever these manufacturers are telling you and their ride numbers and all that stuff and that's, that's all bullshit
0: it, it, well it definitely makes it easier just to sell product for sure to try to simplify it do you, as a shaper, um, prefer to do glass ons? No,
1: no I, I was hesitant about FCS, the removable fin thing, when it first started coming out. And uh, but once you you try it, the uh, I mean, the benefits are just it's you know self evident. You don't really? have the yeah, you don't have that fillet <clears throat> um, around. Although on an airplane on wing roots on an airplane, that that like wing root or that fillet that curved area that kind of goes between that the wing and then the, the actual fuselage apparently that reduces drag of having that right angle but i think on surfboards the boards feel faster especially with smaller fins if you just have a fin that goes right down flush especially on a small side fin or like my widowmaker boards if i have a three inch fin with three inch three inch deep and three inch base i don't want to lose you know almost a half inch of that fin in the in the in that root you know that roving glass fiberglass uh, rope route mm-hmm. and, uh, and people like to be able to change them out too they like to be able to mix boards or mix around some of the some of the dual post like fcs thing you can use a single post side fin and move it from one post to the next and it lets everybody do what i would hope they do is we just learn about fins on their own and spin settings
0: yeah um can you explain the fin setup and the concept behind the Widowmaker? I think first we
1: should probably talk, I think the best thing to do is introduce fins. They originally, you know, coming out of the hot curl era and uh, going into most of the boards that we've seen in those, you know, in the old surf movies, guys out at sunset with this big D fin throwing up these giant rooster tails, you know, when you see them at sunset, that's all drag. So it wasn't really until, back then the fin was basically there as a rudder. It just kept the, boy, it was a stabilizer. Mm-hmm. Didn't let you do much else. Uh, when Greeno came out with his fins, the, the you know, bluefin tuna inspired different stage fins he had, that changed everything because one, they, they, ch- they changed the placement of it. Like with uh, Nat Young's Magic Sam board at Ocean Beach in San Diego during the world titles, th- that fin allowed you to drive a board out of a turn. And so we've never really looked back from there so ever since then now fins if they're done right allow you to not just stabilize the board but drive it hence with rake and different other different sizes and properties and there's all these different things that everybody loves to talk about but really you just have to go out and try a lot of different fins and get a feel for there's too many variables to make any you know just immutable laws about it
0: I know I hate that. <laughs> you know? That's what's it's like, fun about it. But I want you as a so, shaper so, to tell me what to ride, and then I'll
1: go. Well, I could tell you, but it, but it would be based on how I surf or right. where I stand. I mean, think about where you surf, what board, your ability level, the the flex patterns in the boards, where the fins are set, how the fins flex. There's, how do you how do you quantify that and calibrate it? it? It could only be done on an individual basis. It cannot be done by a manufacturer or me or the media or some so-called boffin telling you absolutes it's impossible
0: do we attempt right now to kind of give listeners an understanding so that they can actually make a decision on which fins to put in their board like can you give me some basic fundamentals about number of fins and how they perform size of the fins what rake does what foil does what can't well does
1: to go i think we discussed it last time i talked to you but the the Two big, even before we go there, two big myths about fins as we see them on modern boards is that <clears throat> like a tri-fin or a quad-fin, just by their, with those fin arrays, how they're shaped, what they are, where they are, makes the board faster. And they don't. They're, they're designed and, and placed and set to incur drag. What makes a quad-fin faster is not that the quad-fin's faster, is it's the wide tail. The wide tail is the active ingredient. The fins out on that rail, and this goes back to the first twin fins, the fish, Mark Richards boards, allow you to control that board because the fastest board is going to be short and wide. You see it with, it's the fastest surf craft out there. It's like Mike Stewart on a bodyboard at Jay Bay. He's going to go blow doors on anybody. Pipo boards, no fins, but you can't control them. Mm -hmm. So the fins themselves are, allow you to control a wider tail. So we just have to establish that. The, Typical tri-fin with a one-side foil, towed in, has a snowplow effect. The, there's an inequality in how the water goes around the fin. It creates drag, but that drag, ha- there's, there's, it becomes greater than the sum of its parts. In the, under the feet of a reasonably skilled surfer, allows, it has this natural bias to want to claw the board up the face. It, it, so you, what happens is you use that drag as a resistance and a leverage and a torque to start pumping and turning the board. And then once you get up to speed, you, it's just like an airplane, you overcome. When, when, when uh, lift and thrust outweigh tr- drag and weight, you have flight. And it's similar to surfboards like that too. But there's a, it's very complex. There's a lot of aerodynamic or hydrodynamic things that apply and then some don't. We're towing these things through the water, the surfboard planes on top, uh, airplanes move or fish move through the water. There's a lot of uh, anthropomorphizing fish into fin shapes and everything. Sometimes it works, like with the greeno fin, the shape of it, but sometimes the foils themselves uh, don't. The fish is flexible. It kicks through the the water. It's a flexible Mm -hmm. body. It moves through the water. A lot of the things that people... There's been all these, like, ichthyofinology or whatever. It just doesn't work. Mm. But... So we just have to establish that fins, the way that we see them now, they they basically do have a, a planned drag component... But we use that because surfing is a gravity-fed sport. And the first thing you want to do is go up again to the top of the wave and drop down. And the faster you can do that, the, the, you know, the, better, the faster you're going to go and the more ground you're going to cover.
0: I hate that fins are so expensive. So, like, the barrier for me is I would love to explore everything well, that is, you're is, talking is, about.
1: Isn't there, wasn't there for a while a, some sort of a Netflix-style thing where you could yeah. subscribe and try all these different fins? I would do that. Yeah. I mean, that's the best thing. When I was a kid, I tried every single thing I could try. Of course, it was simpler back then, you know, with single fins. But right. fin- having, growing up with a 10-inch box and an, uh, a 10-inch fins unlimited box and a basic, like, 6'5 or 6'8 single fin and a world of fins to try was an education. And that's,
0: so I would love to do that. Yeah. But at 100 bucks a set, it really limits my ability to do that.
1: Well, but they have a lot of you can go on eBay there's a lot of cheap fins out there there's a lot of fins you can cut down too you can get those uh plasticky resin basic like whatever pop-out type fins that are available They're, those are easily reshaped
0: Hmm. I'd be afraid I wouldn't I, trust my you, own abilities you can't,
1: you can't you can't be afraid it's only plastic
0: Okay. If it goes well, out
1: it sucks and it hums you do go in there and yeah. get a razor blade and scrape the edge again do you have a preferred um, construction material for fins? it depends in, in uh, Tri fins, it doesn't really matter to me. Okay. Only when they start getting longer, um, you know, like single fins, then mm-hmm. then you, there's weight and flex and everything like that, and that's even can vary from board to board too. So right. to me, it's more the materials aren't as important as the the design of the board and the placement of the fin. Got it. Because obviously the you know <laughs> countering that you would you could have an, the most unreal volon Flex fin that was like handcrafted and you know lovingly glossed and polished by somebody by hand, and then you just put it on a crappy board in the wrong place. And what does it matter? You know?
0: So people did want me to pin you down on the Widowmaker, uh-huh. the board design, and then also uh, a number of people said it was the best board they've ever had of any board shape and type. Um, can you explain the impetus for the design, and then definitely tell me about the fin placement?
1: Well, the, that that once again was um, <clears throat> based on frustrations being on the pro tour. Uh, surfing Jeffrey's Bay on a thruster and trying to surf Sunset Beach on a thruster. And those were two waves that were the Excalibur, sword in the stone, stone for me as a surfer because I saw Terry Fitzgerald and all the, the B, BK, Barry Kaniapuni, and all those guys surfing those two. What I, for my kind of surfing as a down-the-line surfer, those were the waves that I wanted to really like set my stone with those guys and I couldn't do it on a tri-fin hmm. and I had the best surfboards in the world by Rusty Briesendorfer and we worked on it but they, the thruster just it, I just at high speeds I would max out especially at places like Sunset and you see that now we'll come to that later I'm sure when we start talking about this resurgence and paddle and big wave surfing but uh, the kind of surfing that I did was I would go and draw a longer line and I would build up more board speed than most guys doing a lot of little like squiggle turns and check turns on a thruster if you're doing a lot of turns you're breaking up that water flow and you're kind of slowing down but if you're like if you're surfing uh like terry fitzgerald or something at sunset and you're just the, the sultan of speed if you have a thruster you get going to a certain speed and the way that the fins are towed in and also that you're putting a cluster of fins and a narrow tail now too the water's got to get through all that and as a snowplow effect, at some point I would just get basically like the high-speed wobbles on a skateboard and just have a meltdown. And then with, Je- with Jeffries Bay, it was hard to surf the wave I wanted because you go wanted to go really fast, and then I wanted to be able to stop immediately and do one of those classic Shane Heran kick stalls and get barrel. I wanted a board that you that Greeno had always talked about, where you had a lot of gears. It was in, it was in neutral. It was in neutral. A lot of today's boards are like Formula One. You never you just. First, you just they just go one speed they're hard to slow down if you start to slow down going really fast at a wave like Superbank or, or another or Jeffrey's Bay on a thruster uh, you start to try to stall there's this tendency to, to get sucked up the face and yeah. then you lose your orientation when you're pulling into the barrel and whereas the single fin too another big change is that back then we surf forward trim classic Sean Thompson free ride we surf forward trim today everybody's back in that one sweet spot so they're kind of fluttering around in there. Yeah, but I mean, that's digressing from the fin thing, but or from the Widowmaker. Yeah, th- yeah, exactly. So the so that came out of a frustration, and I wanted a single fin based design to because on a single fin type board, they people mis, 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 misconstrue when I say they're faster. What I mean is they can handle higher speeds Kay. without maxing out without the drag cost. They don't go faster unless you make them go faster, but at a wave like sunset or jeffries if it's six feet i wanted a board i could go as fast as i want without having the fins fighting me grabbing the handlebars as so to speak and but at the same time i recognized as a surfer as a shaper designer as a professional surfer that the genie was out of the bottle we already were addicted to this thruster turning axis that you would miss that Little bit of triangulation when the way that that side fin on the rail bites, and I remembered uh, boards that I'd seen in the '70s, Reno Abelra and, and Al Chapman and Morning there, these little side fins they had on, on these single fins. Mm. Of course, they had theirs behind the, the center fin. So I just reasoned I'm going to try these little side fins. they're going to be big enough to have a little bit of a to give me that bite, and I wanted it off the top of the wave, not the bottom, because you have a higher speed usually at the top so you would they would come into their own there but i didn't want them so big that they would cancel out that single fin ability to stall and bottom turn and feel that feeling so pretty much right out of the box was able to figure out the size and the setting of it the uh, fins where i set the side fins so that the rear base was lined up with the front base of the center fin so that it was a little bit of wheelbase between them so you get that kind of a claw feeling off the top but a short enough wheelbase, so it still the board could still pivot like a single fin, and with you know small refinements over the years, that was you know, about 30 years ago. Uh, it just seemed to, to work, and I never really tried to sell it to anybody. I think when uh, Andrew Kidman, my friend, got a hold of it, he's a much better surfer than I was, and still is, and uh, he came into it fresh. Uh, being a, a former competitive surfer and a multi-fin surfer, so it, I thought his story or branding of it was more compelling than mine, you know? And he ended up actually going out and doing all the legwork and promoting it. I've never really done anything with it. Yeah. And, I, and it's nothing new. All I was doing was taking ideas that I'd seen better surfers, better designers do in the 70s okay. and tailor it to my, to my surfing. Didn't think anybody else would care about it. Didn't think... It solved my problems. I was sure. I was able to surf the way I wanted to, and then for many years after that, when I got off the tour, I was you know hunting big game around the central coast, and we we're surfing a lot of big bomboras, and uh, it at, at, at probably over eight six or nine feet, I would just go straight single fin because if you don't you don't need multi fins on boards that you're not actively pumping, okay. a lot, but uh, but going back to Jeffries with the first Widowmaker, I think it was about 1988. Um, I could just surf like myself immediately spent spent about six weeks there with sam george and in the after part of the season it was it was i believe it was uh their spring or, or or wait it was in october so that would be yeah their spring it was an incredible experience to just have a board that change the way that lets you surf the way you want to surf. That's
0: what everybody wants. Yeah. Everybody's trying to find that or chase that. So does that fin placement and design apply to other board designs? Well, people
1: always ask, sometimes they'll write, and they'll ask, I want a Widowmaker, and I have to remind them, the Widowmaker is just a fin array. It's not a surfboard design. You can okay. put it on super modern single fins that are almost like a modern gun with the, the proportions and the rocker and the thinness, or you can go and make a full retro Single fin. The board, de- the board design's separate. The, fi- the fin is just an array.
0: You, you uh, started out by saying you designed the fin to solve, or... Um, it was about
1: containing and managing
0: speed. Okay. I remember you said, though, the board that you built with it originally was uh, trying to meet, like, a single fin design, or, like, taking a traditional single fin design... Yeah, the, design the, the original one, right? which I
1: still have, was six 6'9". It was probably about 18 and 3 quarters, so that's fairly contemporary for the 80s. Okay. But it was, uh, the wide point was way up. Big snouty nose, narrow waspy tail, had four little channels in it. And uh, I just felt like at, at Jeffries, I could, it was just like having a lightsaber or a jet. I could do anything I wanted, anywhere I wanted, as fast as I wanted. Never had those weird feelings of of the board maxing out underneath me.
0: Uh, you said the side fins, three inches and three inches. Is this single center fin um, size Determined by the board design, then? Yeah,
1: it's the size of the board, the width of the tail, the thickness, how big the guy is. But generally, they're going to be similar to just basic single fins. They'd be six and a half inches deep with, like, a six-inch base. Or they could go up as high as eight inches deep or seven inches deep. You know, the classic Brewer Parish kind of fins that you see. I like the ones that have a lot of rake. I like the fins that you find in Australia or that you used to find in Australia a lot. Like, during the Shane Moran-McCoy era... They had basically kind of like a brewer type wide base fin but it had a really nice hook on it really nice rake and i'm a big believer in rake why well rake will rake the more rake you have like is a general rule and there's a lot of things that would cancel that out but depending on that what they call aspect ratio which is basically just a ratio of the width of of it and the length it's an aviation or aerodynamic thing so um that the fin just has more drive yeah, you, okay. you have the the you have the, a part of the fin hooking past the base, and the further it goes back, the more the stiffer, but more drive it's going to be. And if you you can kind of mitigate some of the st- the stiffness, the stiffening aspects of it by maybe narrowing the base. So if you go a narrower base with a nice hook, and then in, depending on how thin that tip gets, or how wide or thick or uh, it gets, or how much you hold that more of the area up there, you can. Um, change how it feels and deal with speed and, and then deal with flex. So there's a lot of room in there for experimentation okay. and there's no absolutes.
0: So have you seen other surfboard builders embrace that Widowmaker design set up the fin cluster? Um,
1: yeah, I think so. I think based on Andrew's promoting of it uh, in places like Australia where there's you know, better surf and more room to experiment, I think some of his friends... Um, Second-generation shapers that he knows, like uh, Neil Purchase Jr. and a couple other guys. I, I, I mean, it's it's out there, but it's it's. Uh, I'm not trying to sell it to anybody. I mean, I'm not. But then again, it has to be for people that surf waves of consequence too. Yeah.
0: You
1: you 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 start to notice it if you if you notice drawbacks with you know modern multi-fin boards mm-hmm. in waves that you want to surf differently. Yeah. Not just draw the standard you know, playbook line of triple pump off the bottom, go up, spray, come down. Yeah.
0: I guess spending six weeks at J Bay will help you sort out some of that. I would love to have that learning experience too.
1: Yeah. And it wasn't even crowded too. It was it was before the, you know, I mean, it was hardly the halcyon years, but it was at that time of year when I was there, there there's nobody around really. And you could just surf your fill.
0: That's amazing. Um, you mentioned big, big wave paddling, did you watch any of the Piahi Challenge a month ago?
1: Yes, I, I did. I saw some of it on TV live, and I saw um, I saw a lot of problems with the, uh, obviously with people using multi fins or quads on those on guns like that.
0: I mean, they're almost exclusively riding quads out there, right? Yeah, I, I
1: don't. I really don't understand that. It's it's uh, it that that's just not the way to go. Really? <clears throat> well. No less of a p- personage than George Greeno, it says the same thing. He basically agrees with me on my things about fins and single fins it's, he would tell you the same thing. People just don't understand what these fins are doing. Mm-hmm. And
0: If you have the top surfers in the world getting boards from guys who they explicitly trust their life with, where is the confusion? Where do, what are they mistaking? So
1: they don't understand the
0: principles. And, and the board builders People, a lot either? of
1: board builders board, even Grubby Clark always said that most board design is just copying existing designs and putting your stamp on it you have to understand the, the, the hydrodynamics at work on something like that because it's not just the fins it's also there's a lot of different types of drag so I would I would uh, at, tell people to go and google the uh, wiki and look up like a real basic treatise on uh, parasite drag and it, you know it's pretty clear that when you, well, so, so for example, back when Chuck Yeager and those guys in the Mojave, when they were trying to to defeat the sound barrier, how did they solve it? They didn't solve it by adding more fins to it. They solved it by reconfiguring the profile of the plane and reducing wings and fins. And because they had to defeat that drag that happens when you increase the speed on a on a vessel going through air or water, and uh, they kept getting that problem. Of they couldn't control it, and to do it, they had to streamline the boards. So a single fin, essentially, all things being equal, because you have to take into account the board design itself, but a double-side foil single fin, it's not too deep, is basically going to allow you to hit higher speeds. Okay. But there's other types of drag. There's all kinds of things that I don't want to get into, like, like the boundary layers and how that affects boards but there's contour drag of the outline of the board the amount of rocker the edges all those things affect how it moves through a fluid medium and what what you see happen with boards with like quad fins on 10-foot boards is one I've already established that it's not the quads that make the boards go faster it's the wide tails that most of them are put on when you start putting those in a constrained area on maybe an 8 or 9 inch tail the water's got to go through all that. The fins are towed in. They're asymmetrically foiled. There's more of them. You're so it, it's not even a matter of opinion. It's just science. What happens is you get to a certain speed, and the water just can't get through and around all that shit fast enough, and the board just maxes out. You lose control. You see guys drop in? That's not where the highest speed is. The highest speed is when they get down, and you notice right when they really need to start running, do you see the board just slow down and kind of go, and it just throws them? So there's that principle on things like parasite drag, when you have wing struts, wing appendages, fins, anything like that, if you double the speed, regardless of whether it's water or air, you quadruple the drag. So you can feel that when you're flying your hand out the window of a car, mm-hmm. you can put it up and you can have a certain amount of lift. but when you double the car speed, you can feel the drag. So they're just, at some point, they're gonna hit a speed threshold that activates that. And the cost is they lose, the board just cannot go any faster. You used to see it a lot on uh, poorly designed old Malibu boards like at Sunset 2, you know, terrible D fins. You know, the board would get to a certain speed and then it yeah. just max out.
0: Well, I'm wondering if um, they've reached the fastest amount of speed that they... Now they're, now they're um, designing for control, basically. They're adding those fins because they're like, look... We're going as fast as we want to go already now we want to be able to bottom turn the board or to do a turn on the face of the but wave. They're not. nobody's like
1: nobody's really performing is know? that a like, goal
0: i mean but i think that's the next step right
1: well it, it, it would but there's a lot to learn like the boards the, uh, surfing big waves especially in a place like like what we're talking about at piahi is <clears throat> the board has to be a paddle board essentially yeah. to catch the wave then when you caught the wave you don't want that paddleboard you want the tow board we learned that we learned that Right, Really, the, amount, the control you need to surf those waves aggressively and in, with a modern you know, like high-performance hot-dogging mentality, you need a tow board. You need a paddle board to catch it. You need a tow board to surf it. So where's that middle ground? Where's the board that lets you get into those waves safely enough because there's a lot of stuff going on. The water's just coming up the face. Yeah. And you're, you're getting this almost like airspeed, speed quandary like in an airplane where you might be moving, the water molecules might be moving over your board really, really fast, but you're not going, your ground speed is actually, you know, your water speed and your ground speed are different. You got to get over that ledge, the wind's blowing up the face, the water's coming up the face, you're going down the face, so the speed's even increase the amount on the water speed going through your board and through all that stuff. And that kind of leads me to that whole thing about Brewer, when he, his, his uh, groundbreaking board that is the forefather of all these boards was his, his pipeliner which was the predecessor to the minigun and the pocket rockets that he came up, which are basically our modern surfboards. That's where it all came from. Yeah. He was able to change that old kind of like classic longboard gun that you used to see into something that was controllable at high speeds. And then from there, the, that whole minigun uh, revolution at the beginning of the shortboard era gave us what we have now. But his his thing was that what you wanted was what he called a clean exhaust. He wanted right. not a lot of contour, a crisp, little crisp V-panel. Of course, that changes over the eras. but you, basically what he wanted was the water to get off the planing surface and off the tail as fast as it came on the board. If it does that, you're not going to have these meltdowns that you see. Mm-hmm. you will be able to go as fast as you want to go. Because another thing is you are going in a straight line a lot, too. If you're, I used to watch Michael Ho surf YMA on a, on a little thruster. And he was able to avoid that high-speed max out because he did so many check turns. Right. And he just kind of kept it going. And the water never really got a chance to build up and do that snowplow effect.
0: Right. So did you see Ian Walsh's 10-point ride at the Piatti Challenge where he got barreled?
1: Yeah, that's... Barrel, that whole thing is, is incredible. Like those guys being able to do that in those waves on those sides' boards with a wave that is just a rank bowl yeah. like that is fantastic. That's not what I'm talking about. Like pulling into a tube, you don't, it doesn't matter how many fins you got on your board or what configuration, you're going to be able to do that. I'm talking about going, making it to the bottom in control at high okay. speed, turning like MR did at Waimea the first time he ever surfed it in the Smirnoff in 74, and go back up yeah. and then turn back down. To okay. do that, you need the kind of control that you're just you're just not going to get on a quad fin. The, the other thing is the tail's just too narrow. You put all that together so you get yeah. this nozzle okay. effect, so it just stands to reason that you're, you're just going to have that drag cost at some point, and it's going to be when you least want it.
0: Got it. So on that wave with Ian Walsh, that's what I was going to ask you is, would he have been able to do that on a single fin? Because it's it wasn't like he knifed into it, but he also didn't go to the bottom, the bottom t-
1: turn. There's too many variables. You can't just say, like, I don't know what the board looks like. The board design, a properly designed board, like I, how I would see it would, be, it, would be a different thing. I don't, you know, I can't say. It's not, a fin is not just the one thing. The board is a composite or a compromise of all these different things, often, often conflicting. Of course, the stakes are higher because people's lives do depend on it. Yep. And as a surfer shaper, I probably spent more time when I was younger uh, in waves like over 18 or 20 feet than I don't know many shapers that have. So I've been out there doing it and designing boards for it and always told those guys when they were getting into the tow thing and there was uh, Jaws and those outer reef waves and uh, uh, Cortez Banks that you guys can paddle into these waves. It's just you're not familiar enough with big boards like how people are in Hawaii or out at Macaw people are used to h- surfing big boards you need a big board and you know and you have to spend a lot of time on them to know how to control it mm-hmm. I think they need to be narrower and they need to be they have way more like breakaway edges on them they, they need to just they need to be narrower they need to have the wide point up they need to have a waspy tail um, I think that they're just stretching out modern surfboard like okay. the short boards, right they're just stretched out okay. and there's too much too much contour too much curve too much contour drag and I think that uh eventually people are gonna hit on that. But for example, one of the points I always make is if you walk, go back to the like the Waimea era <clears throat> or Sunset Beach on the brewer type classic brewer single fin or the Tom Parrish single fin that everybody rode in the North Shore in the free ride era or whatever, you never saw guys maxing out okay. on big waves. They would do other stuff and get in trouble, but they never just hit a speed and the board would, would just all of a sudden slip on a banana peel and go out from under him. He just didn't see that.
0: That's a good point. Yeah. Can you give anyway, me check
1: with George Greeno because he'll back me up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can you give me a primer on channels? Channels are, there's, uh,
1: you know, that's uh, <laughs> a horse of many colors because there's, uh, I think, all boards would have channels if they were just stamped out in an industrial press. They're, they just work great. Most people don't want to shape them or glass them. They're, they're not work, for everybody. but They work
0: great for what?
1: They work great because, well, there's many different types of channels. The ones that everybody are thinking of are the classic Al Burn or Hamish Graham kind where they're really deeply guttered channels that go off kind of a narrower tail with a lot of fins, and they go way up in the front of the board. You know, they go well up into like, the past, the influence of your back foot. Okay. So I just I put them there because they put they have a lot of grip and drive. If you add up that the, the those channels that are going off the tail, if they're designed properly, and calibrated right with the right fin setup, is if you add up all that 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 uh, edge that is basically like fin, you have like a lot more square inches of fin than you have fin. But there's no drag cost. So you have for say a single fin design. If you want to soup up a single fin and make it a little bit more drivey and skatey like a modern tri-fin or something, and you can do channels, and horizontally they give you that grip, like a tire tread without any drag cost. Hmm. The other thing they tend to do is, at an angle, water will go over one side and cavitate, and then they kind of hit the other side and stop, and you get this weird power steering effect with them, hmm. where it, the board's almost easier to turn, just like, it, it's one half of it's efficient, the other half's not. Um, but what I try to do with channels is each channel is from inboard to outboard is designed to peak in depth at a certain place, and each as you go to the outboard channels they change and where they break off the rail, and then all those have to be calibrated and set in harmony with the fins. If it's a multi-fin or a, a widowmaker, or whatever. What I'm trying to do is put an area of the most drive or the or the greatest area that you're pushing against with the channel the square eight inches of the channel in the same place that your foot would go like over the fin to surf okay and so with a single fin or a, or a widow maker i the outboard channel is the deepest and, it, and i try to map it out so that it breaks right where the side fin is or would be okay so and it's also the channels don't go up very far they i think on most of the boards they don't go up much more than 26 inches 24 to 26 inches on the shorter ones so they don't fight for control of the board with your front foot your front foots you like if you're surfing off your front foot and you're a front foot surfer it's your accelerator and your rail setting foot the back foot is how you steer and do turns so it's basically under the influence of your back foot and what i what you want is for something that just doesn't uh, backseat drive you or grab for the handlebars all the time
0: um it's a convincing sales pitch it's not a their, sales pitch it's well, just no but it, are there any downsides to it
1: yeah, they're expensive to glass, and if they're not sanded right, um, you can ha- you can weaken the board. But I don't yes. I don't see
0: from a design standpoint, or just from a surfability standpoint, are there any downsides?
1: Not in the, how I make them for myself or for other people. I can see other ones that would be because they're just too much. They're also there. Some of them are too steep. They're just there's a, like these big deep guttered ones like that. That would be cool for. I would love a big old Alburn seven-footer with those gnarly deep gutters, almost an inch deep at a perfect eight-foot day at Bells Beach coming from Center Side and just wailing across. I would love that. But for day-to-day surfing, no. But the ones I do, I try to make them that are more subdued, and they just, they're just they like little treads on a tire. Hmm. They just cost more. The glassers charge you know, like 30 or 40 bucks more to glass, especially if you're doing resin tents. I don't charge more to shape them. But, It's neither here nor there. I don't care what people think. It's just... There are some people that say, oh, they don't do anything. I would wish that people would just say, well, they do something. They suck. They they can't can't not do anything. Exactly. They either help or hurt you. They don't do nothing. Yeah. 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 Um, So do they hurt you? How can they hurt
0: you? Zero drag?
1: Yeah, there's no drag. There's other types of drag on the board. You have this whole thing with boundary layer and air. It's air molecules that's adhering to the surface and then they're they're conflicting and abrading with other air molecules with water it's about you know it's water the channels like that it's there's nothing that's out sticking into like a fin
0: but it's just dis- the way that it disrupts the water flow i would think that would create some hey, sort of
1: go watch some really good footage of guys surfing modern surfboards with a leash at tavarua from underwater and when they're just going pump 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 when you're watching that chaos and turbulence there's already more than enough chaos and water disruption and turbulence going on that it, you can't even imagine anything more disruptive than that mm. the leash is worse the leash causes more disruption and turbulence you watch leashes drag and twist behind boards like take off your leash you want it, you know, like don't get a 90 dollars set of fins that say they're more efficient Get take off your leash
0: yeah what are your thoughts on asymmetry
1: for for what Surfboards. <laughs> Surfboards, oh, it's been done. It came out of, uh, there was all kinds of guys down in Santa Monica, like Natural Progression and probably, I would imagine, Zephyr and Zoom. There was a, a huge hotbed of uh, guys down there experimenting with that. Um, and in the sailboard thing, it was, it was, it's been done. There's uh,
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's still being done, and it's not fully explored yet. Um, from when I've talked to people who actually do build boards and sailboards boards that are asymmetrical, they offer the same thing that you're saying about the channels where it's like, well, it's just too hard to get, number one, the market to really like even understand it. Number two, to get glassers to do it. Number three, yeah.
1: you know, like, well, how asymmetrical are we talking about? Are we talking about really like a, a board that is completely off? The opposite, outlines are different. The whole, even on yeah. one side of the stringer to the next. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Peter Townen did a board like that back in the early 80s that was called the bi That was a really yeah, weird, remember that. you know, the fins were even set weird. So I, it's I think it's totally viable. I don't I don't think it hasn't been explored. I just think that how do you how do you say which is better because some people wanted a shorter rail backhand and some people want a shorter rail forehand. Like it's highly customizable.
0: So what are your thoughts on it though um, theoretically it seems to have a lot of application or like the the basic theory that I've been told is your foot isn't symmetrical, your your heels have the ability to like add weight, whereas your toes can add weight, but they can also pull and that But that but
1: that's, but that's varies from surfer to surfer. Completely. You have Mark Ocalupo is right. probably stronger on his back end. And you get other people that don't have that. But exactly. I don't think there's any argument there. I think that, that. Well,
0: no, but the argument is that your foot's asymmetrical, the wave's asymmetrical, the water never traverses the surface of the board symmetrically. Yeah. So why would the board ever be symmetrical? It doesn't need to be. No
1: boards really are unless they're right. shaping machine boards. You know, they're perfect.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Tom Morey once said something that, <clears throat> and you could go through in the 70s and probably the 80s and mine his quotes and they just stand the test of time. He just... One of the things he said is symmetry is the biggest waste of time. He says if human beings aren't symmetrical. No. You're not symmetrical. Uh, the board doesn't need to be... Symmet- few are anyway. And in fact, some of the greatest boards that we've ever had, if you look at Tom Curran's Black Beauty and some, you know, other boards that were uh, famously asymmetrical or had... Tw- some of the best boards I've ever had had a warp in them and it, it maybe facilitated a backhand. It's... Those are all happy accidents. It takes the scientific method of, like, observing these things and having an open mind and proceeding, not just coming out and, you know, uh, you know, just exhibiting a marketing campaign over it or something. You know.
0: So you're suggesting have an open mind about the asymmetry. Is it something that you've explored or would be con- yeah, I've, made, I've made
1: boards like that before. It's just, well, here's another thing. One of the things that is a... The calling card or the the stamp of uh, of a shaper's uh, you know one of the ways that shapers pee on the hydrant, so to speak, is the ability to control boards to be symmetrical. You know, you go look at the cr- the stamp of his craftsmanship is symmetry. Who can get this symmetry? But it, we're talking about a design that is solely not need to be asymmetric you know need to be symmetrical. Yeah, no, just it just doesn't. <clears throat> I just think there's other things that I would pursue more than that, although it's a totally valid thing. But I think that that's a sort of board that is uh, an individual pursuit, the individual shaper. And we used to have a lot more of that, people building their own boards, and I try to encourage that now too. Yeah. Surfer shapers, trying that, seeing if it works for them. It's not a one size fit all thing. Sure. Most people, one, a lot of surfers aren't good enough to feel the difference. Two, they might benefit from they might get a board like that, it's a perfectly fine board, but if it was more exaggerated or more subdued, it might have worked better. You never know until you go through the experimentation.
0: And that's the same goes for symmetrical boards. And what about thin settings?
1: Yeah, but, but thin settings are more controlled. You know, it's like a, a, a controlled clinical trial. That mm-hmm. You can kind of count on a certain amount of symmetry, so what you're feeling, you know, is like you can kind of start to say with a little bit more accuracy that yeah. this type of board feels this way with this fin setting when you start like where are you going to decide what the magic ingredient is on an it's, asymmetrical board it's very board? complicated yeah it's
0: complicated. but i'm open to it i'm open to it so too. here's the designs that i've written i'll explain them to you yeah. kind of um the amount of foam on the heel side or first of all the outline heel side narrower outline or a shorter outline let's say five five on the heel side five nine on the toe side so longer outline on the toe side usually cut out of the tail um, the foam distribution on the heel side is thicker but narrower between the stringer and the edge of the board again that thickness is allowing for the weight that your heels apply the toe side about yeah, whose weight well it's either built See, for a regular foot surfer no, or a cool weight, foot but who's weight? But for
1: what weight? What ability? Every human being what rocker? Has, but every human but,
0: being has more weight well, on just, their heel I, I'm side I'm than their I'm just trying foot to side.
1: say that it's the, it's there's too many
0: variables. But they're designed... Let's say it's custom, though. So it's designed yeah. for a surfer of a given weight or whatever. But the point is, your heels always are going to have the ability to push more than your toes are, and the toes are going to have the ability to leverage more than the heels are. So the toe side of these boards have been wider from stringer to rail line, but also thinner... And then the fin cluster, there's a, like a twin fin cluster under the heels and a larger single, or a larger twin, but only one of them on the toe side. So what you get on the toe side is you're going down the line, let's say front side, is kind of drive, down the line drive. And then when you lean onto the heels, it's a tighter turning radius because there's less outline in the water, and then you have a cluster under your heels as well. What I have found from my experience riding them is that those principles actually do translate in the water, and I'll get a more responsive turning radius on the heels, or like just doing a cutback or something, and then more stability and drive while going down the line. That's generally. To your point, I don't know if you applied a more extreme version of those things, how that would respond, or even if there was... A symmetrical board that was like the heel side or a symmetrical board that was like the toe side how that would then vary you know
1: yeah there's it's it's like i said it's a valid <clears throat> design thing to pursue because as more people ride more different boards and there's a greater talent base in surfing than probably ever before on all these different kind of alternative surf craft and people that have more time and money to surf and experiment as we have now people used to have to have a jobs yeah you know, yeah. <laughs> you know? In like during the free ride era, or during my my day, and uh, so there's you're probably going to run these things down. And another thing is, which we'll probably get onto, is that Kelly Sl- Slater's wave pool, huge boon for figuring things like that. You have a basically kind of a fairly replicable wave uh, with and being able to run a board time and again with different surfers, same fin setting, and you, you probably will be able to run down those things a lot more. I think it's probably going to have a, a, a be a boon for surfboard design, at least for certain types of surfboard design.
0: Let's talk about it then. Um, I just mentioned to you before we started recording that they added it to the 2018 World Tour Mm -hmm. schedule. It's going to be in May for both the men and the women. What are your thoughts on it Um, I don't know just kind of globally, like is it a good thing for surfing? Is it a bad thing for surfing? And then additionally, what does it do for board design? What does it do for progression of surfing?
1: Well, it can't hurt surfing.
0: You don't think so? No. It's, well, I think it's
1: it's just you look it's basically sport based. You know, nobody's saying you're going to go there and smell like what Dora used to talk about the sea urchins and the low tide smell. You're not going there to get the the sights, sounds and smells of the ocean. It's it's there for sport. It's a you know, it's a triumph of technology that they've sure. been able to do it. Uh, that said, I think the biggest thing will other than having the that kind of environment for surf contests is that people are going to learn because a lot of these pro surfers boards being computer designed are down to these super you know, very, very small you know, uh, increments of tolerances like sixteenth of an inch and I think that being able to surf a wave is basically kind of the same way. I would say it's a carbon copy, right? But mm-hmm. it's pretty close over and over you're going to learn a lot about board design So and fins
0: Okay, so I agree with you the one variable that will always exist in board design is that they're handmade, and maybe by multiple people. So there's going to be variation between two boards that were meant to be identical. Whereas well, yeah, you they have won't be
1: identical. Even even boards that come off the same program, exactly. They're, they're different. Fo- the there's the grain in the stringer and the foam pour is different. The way they're glassed and sanded, the laps change it. The, all the, but the, but they're as close as we can get for the level of surfing, you know, where this isn't, right. you know, this isn't like Olympic gymnastics, you know. So, so the
0: question though is one of Kelly Slater's other projects that he's involved with is Firewire, which mm-hmm. is now a design that you can actually replicate because it's not really touched by man nearly as much as, you know, the boards that you're building are. So if one of the benefits of the wave pool is ability to hone in on design and then you have he has a manufacturing system allows him to eliminate all the variables created by man now we're getting into muddy water like is that a good thing
1: well you know? I, I i think that it's uh what comes to mind is our when jurassic park came out and we went into this whole cg computer generated images of the dinosaurs people were like wow this is insane this changes everything now 20 some years later it's just like "Eh." see it's like you look at these Thirty thousand orcs in Lord of the Rings, and you just got CG. It, yeah, exactly. You don't. It you. The eye gets sophisticated fast, and now we're back to movies that are like Mad Max Fury Road, practical effects, and we just go, wow. It's so I see that, that there can be a backlash. Like so, in five years or ten years, if you see another picture of a guy perfectly slotted in this barrel. Are you, is it gonna sa- have the same impact on you knowing that it's so easily reproduced or so easily achieved than you would seeing the same picture of someone at Burley heads in an Australian magazine and knowing that it had to be the right tide, the right swell, the perfect conditions for all, the perfect placement of the guy, the way of judgment, to get in that classic Burley heads barrel, like Bugs Bartholomew squat, which is, you can do it at will now in Loomis. So right now it's, it's epic, but in five years looking at it, is it going to have the same tang?
0: Yeah, I mean, but knowing that that is coming, do you feel any sort of moral indignance about it? You know? No,
1: because there's that many more people there. They're not going to be in the ocean. Okay. <laughs> it's, like, you know, it's like sports bars. The more people that are in sports bars, the less they are out there you know, tailgating me or getting in the way of my way to the beach. You know. Okay.
0: Or My, surfing to me is more? a
1: relationship to the ocean, and and uh, the the surfing itself is just a vector for that, or it has been. You know, even though I've been through all these phases, but I I bear no malice towards that. I think it's a fantastic thing for the sport, and I think that it's there's a lot of possibilities for it, and a lot of possibilities, especially for bringing some of the the uh, our silverbacks back into it. Some of the, like a masters tour people. I'd love to see that in in the kind of in a controlled environment like that. When it's going to be, it'll be fantastic.
0: What about the idea that it doesn't, it just actually creates more surfers and not all those people, they're going to end up in the ocean?
1: Well, that's the old North Shore movie uh, argument. But I, one of the best things about that wave pool is I just say, you know, we talked about the ultimate, uh, why there's never been a good surf-based feature fiction film. Now we can have it. Because with this pool, with those waves, now we can have Caddyshack for surfing. Because I would I love would to love see, because it's an elitist, it's a country club. Yeah. The, i would love to see caddy day in that pool that's wouldn't you i'd like to see the gag reel for caddy day in that pool
0: well i gotta say i am very surprised on your take on wave pools and even being david you gotta firewire conversation
1: that i was in the very first surf surf contest ever held at a wave pool in 1985 in allentown pennsylvania you know what i got equal ninth
0: it's ringing a bell now yeah um give me the story well, is that pool still in existence? What what, what was the technology? Was it
1: there was there was an amusement park there, and uh, Ian and Cairns and Peter Townend with the ASP they wanted to make professional surfing uh, like uh, like baseball. We all were baseball players, and we wanted a game every weekend. So they started figuring out a tour that was uh, with with like circle. Uh, world or Cir- circle pacific or circle atlantic airfares that would be a contiguous tour that could go from place to place to place so all of us even if you got 32nd or 17th in your heat you'd still earn money okay and you go to the next one so somehow they figured out to do this thing and it was a very controversial at allentown pennsylvania it was a, uh, a I believe tom carroll won, i think and uh and I think Derek coe was in the finals too, but it was, uh, it was an interesting thing. It was yeah. an interest to go into the heart of Allentown, you know, yeah. uh, it was a depressed, you know, steel area. And, uh, but the most jarring thing was going from that contest where all of us got sick from the, there was a drought. So the water had to be filtered and refiltered. And then they'd let the masses go in and play a little bit between, you know, the quarterfinals and the semis or whatever. And uh, a lot of us got sick and the very next day we were on the plane to South Africa and oh, no. landing in Cape Town in July uh, in the middle of winter and at, with 8 to 10 foot outer calm and yeah, that was a jarring thing but that was yeah. all part of the, that was all part of being a pro sure yeah.
0: were the waves um, better in that pool or worse than the 86 OP Pro that you rode the longboard in
1: oh the uh, the, waves, the wave pool was much better because you could count on getting a wave <laughs> okay yeah
0: predictable yeah
1: and also it might be of some interest too is that we i went around and around with greg mungle who was a fantastic board designer and he got me into eps epoxy we tried all kinds of things with all these weird ideas of how the freshwater this little weak wave is going to behave we made like an eps epoxy version of my rusty boards at the time and all these spooky boards and in the end i just rode my regular pu polyester board yeah it didn't work better
0: yeah. That's what I heard everybody talking about with Kelly's pool as well. Is that there really is no discernible difference um, in riding? You don't need to ride special equipment for the for the pool.
1: At a wave like that, I don't think so. No, I yeah. think there's enough.
0: Yeah.
1: If you so, if you got the invite, you'd go ride that wave. No, I have no interest in it. It's just I'm just glad. I think it's wonderful that uh, whoever worked on it, or you know, if uh, you got the invite, I would. You know what I'd want to do in that wave? Is body cool. surf it it would be really a perfect body surfing way that rate of curl fire and the, uh, uh, all my dreams of surfing are always body surfing you're always really? just in this barrel and just going forever and ever yeah that
0: would be a fun way to body surf yeah i don't think i've seen anybody body surf it i saw footage of uh
1: unintentionally i think they have probably a couple.
0: maybe i saw footage of ian cairns there last or the footage surfaced last week of him riding a stand-up paddle um it was the wrong board choice but
1: yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just hard to wrap your head around the fact that the best wave in California is now in Loomis. So.
0: Crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, do you have any thoughts on surfing being included in the Olympics? Uh,
1: I just don't see it happening. Oh, I don't, really? From what I know. They, well, it's just a, it's a judged sport. And I think the Olympics have always been trying to get away from that unless it's absolutely necessary.
0: What if they can have this wave pool come online by 2020 and build one in Japan for the event? Well, they might
1: do it as a demonstration sport, but that's fine. It's uh, I mean, what, it's inevitable, right? I mean, people are going to either they're going to push it to that and then recede away, or something else will happen. If if we even have. A, you know, a livable surface of the earth by then we'll see you know.
0: it's funny you should say that a question that i skipped over but now i'll come back to somebody wanted to know um what's your fascination with the post-apocalyptic world in your writings even in the movie list that you provided for me you seem to be well
1: did you fascinated. do all those movies or do you just do half of them
0: i did both i
1: because, did all of them because there's movies like storm boy and yeah. local hero like,
0: i included that list a month after i well, po- I grew up
1: post-apocalyptic. on post apocalyptic i think the first I saw by accident Night of the Living Dead the original one in like 1969 when I was about eight years old and it just traumatized me did it really and then that led to uh, discovering via the the movie The Omega Man uh, Richard Matheson's unbelievably harrowing I Am Legend which Mm -hmm. is like one of the most horrifying books you ever want to read Uh, highly recommend it I Am Legend Richard Matheson has nothing to do with all the iterations of that movie um, but really the, the thing about the post-apocalyptic thing is it's just i've always loved castaway stories i always wanted to be you know classic jules verne mysterious island thrown up with only your resources onto a an island and having to make a livable world out of it and i just figure that's all just an extension of it
0: hmm. um, you know it's funny you started out by saying the feedback that you've gotten about this show is that people want to hear you talk about non-surf related stuff and you're right, like, just that answer, I agree with you, um, that's why they were asking me those things, you know? All the board yeah. design stuff, I think, is also equally important, but I almost skipped over some of those non-surfing questions. Yeah, I
1: think that, that, that question in particular was more related to a, a bunch of uh, pictures of books that I had put out oh, okay. on the Instagram thing, and that was, it wasn't like I was, I've read those books many times over a long, long ago, they were all in sequence. Starting with Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, which I've been telling people for the last like, 15 or 20 years that this is the model for what's going to happen in America. And then it goes from that to, you know, like on the beach, and then on to the, to, there's a treatise on the medical, and uh, so, so psychological uh, impact of thermonuclear war, and then it goes into the road. Right. You know, Cormac McCarthy's thing. So it's really, it was just a little political cartoon to show that progression of books. Okay. 1984 I'll, was in there too of course.
0: I'll list all of those on uh in the notes with today's episode. Um so along kind of that line of questioning then philosophically, why do you think that surfers are so anti other surf related sports? You know, if you're a high performance shortboarder, you endlessly make fun of boogie boarders and stand up paddlers. If you're into traditional longboarding, you snub your nose at short borders. Why is why are surfers so much that way?
1: Well surfers are actually a very hidebound and conservative and reactionary bunch of people. We always paint ourselves as this, you know, open minded, barefoot, groovy California like it's all good kind of thing. But it but it's not all good, you know, when you talk to other people. That's what I love about Hawaii, because over there everybody embraces everything. As long as everybody obeys like a basic hierarchy, you know, which sure. Yeah. And um, it's it's just limiting. I remember <clears throat> I think uh, Sam George once he met, he was talking to someone that was anti-longboarding. And this was back when it first came back in the '90s, and, and this guy, someone was uh, longboard. I'm never. That's not going to be me. And Sam's argument was what? So you're not going to surf the rest of your life? He goes, What do you mean? I'm going to surf forever. So you're going to be riding a shortboard, or you're going to be riding your 6 thruster when you're 70 years old, like with your neck and everything like that. Because cause it, Sam said his argument was like, if you really love surfing, then it means someday you're going to have to make peace with a longboard. If you want to be Doc Ball or Woody Brown or Buffalo Keolana. So at some point, if you're going to be a, a really a diehard surfer, you're going to have to embrace these other crafts because you cannot ride high performance surfboards when you're 80. Right. Or even 70 something. I remember Ricky Grigg telling me once that I asked him when the line was for him. He says, well, after 55, your neck just goes out. And then it's kind of downhill from there, you can still do things. And then you saw it with people like Fred Van Dyke, who is just like the most incredibly fit guy, you know, even into his 50s and everything. And at some point, everybody, no matter how fit they were, how hard they work at it, you just can't keep that level up of, and so you have to start looking for gentler waves and different surf craft. And uh, if you're gonna surf your whole life and I've watched like in Macaw I watched Buffalo Keowano go from uh, go through a lot of those phases as he's gotten older and he's done it with complete dignity and aplomb and acceptance of it mm. there's no ego about it yeah. know, about like having to like change to go you know maybe going out and riding a bully board or something or body surfing instead of being out on a, a gun out in a giant Macaw you know it's just Well, the, Buzzy wh- Trent said uh, there's life's about timing time to get in and a time to get out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, why do you think surfers are reactionary and um, conservative?
1: I think the uh, well, the the, the, uh, our you know, the leaves or the food that, that we all eat on the African belt are, it's very competitive. You know, a giraffe can get up with a longer neck can get up and eat some some other bit of foliage that no other animal can get and uh i I think that there's there's just an evolution with these things that really if people look at it i mean back in i mean stop me i've made this point before but when lightweight balsa boards came out all the lumberjack redwood guys were going oh that's at the end of the game now guys can carry their boards down the pv cliffs and it's a girl's board. And then they, they said the same thing when wetsuits came in. When light, they called foam boards flexi-flyers and ridiculed them. Leashes, we went through that. You know, wetsuits, it opened up. Everything is opened up. There's more surfers. But long stand-up, whatever, it spread everybody out. If we were still following the same uh, models of surfing or, or our arena was the same size it was back in, you know, like Mickey Dora's day at Malibu, we'd all be herded in San Onofre, Waikiki, Sunset Beach. We'd be at these few places Everybody, we had to spread out. And to spread out, we needed different equipment yeah. to do it. So really, all these things that, granted, it's irritating when people come out and abuse leashes or the wrong equipment at congested breaks that are very easy to surf and line up, like a lot of our ways in California. But by and large, they, those things have spread more people out than they've congested them.
0: Hmm. Um, it's very true. It's fascinating. Um, Tom Mori, or I should back up. Mike Stewart and friends just recently started a campaign for Tom Mori, who's suffering from some health ailments. Mm-hmm. He hasn't been able to see for quite some time, um, and he doesn't have medical adequate medical care. So they're starting like a GoFundMe page. I see. And one uh, listener emailed and said, "Ask you, do we as a surfing community have a moral imperative?" to help Tom Morey through the final stages of his life?
1: Well, is it the final stages of his life or is it just a medical challenge? I don't know, it's hard to quantify that. But I would think, it must be a younger reader. (laughs) Because everything's so black and white. Yeah, younger listener, because what imperative, like just the imperative is, well, if you've ever-
0: He's deeming you as the one who uh, is the arbiter of such things though.
1: Well, that's an individual thing. I, I don't think that uh, charity or, or compassion or empathy should be compulsory. It's up to each person to figure it out. If you've benefited from a bodyboard or not benefited from a bodyboard, or, uh, bodyboard he's, he's been the most unsung and influential surfboard designer in surfing history. Yeah. Let's just say that. Yeah. And his, because of the bodyboard, the boogie board, people have forgotten all the other things that he's done for surfboards or the, a lot of the theory. He had more... Fantastic and applicable theories just scattered to the four winds back in the 70s and oh. unread magazine articles than any of this bullshit hang tag crap you see today.
0: Yeah.
1: I and mean, he is truly one of our Mount Rushmore surf, shape, surfer, designer, shapers, philosophers.
0: Which I think is why that listener asked the question. Yeah, I would is absolutely.
1: Anybody that can, it would be great. We are a tribe. We're a peaceful tribe by and large, regardless of that hidebound, reactionary, t- territorial streak. We're not out there creating the problems in the world today. The ocean has molded us into a different race of people. Yeah. And uh, one of the things is that you know, it would be good if we could take care of our pe- people that have done so much for us.
0: Yeah, I completely agree.
1: He found out a way to go out there and get that mastodon without mortality. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, for us.
0: Um, started off the conversation by saying that you've been kind of a polarizing figure where people feel like at one end um, maybe you're pretentious has been a word that people have thrown around how do you combat that negativity have you ever googled your own name have you read the comment section and no never I just don't just doesn't
1: I don't know it's not it's just not applicable it doesn't means nothing what people don't know you or like pretentious how is how is being just a a, a writer and a, a thinker like, I look at myself as... I don't even... surfer would be far down the list in the top five things I think I would be. As To me, it's just a reader. And I'm, I want to learn about history. And yeah. I want to learn about our place in the universe and why we're here. Surfing is just a, a way to uh, help actualize that.
0: Well, whoever has commented that, I would hope that they would listen to your thoughts on the wave pool or your thoughts on Tom Maury. You know, because I get... I never get any negativity out of you. You're always positive about whatever it is that is taking place. Even when I ask you the question about stand up paddles, it's like that's gone into a very weird place. That is uh, a lot of surfers, where I surf anyways, hate stand up paddlers, and they would use any opportunity to talk crap about stand up paddle. But they
1: did that and back as, in the early '90s with the modern longboard coming back and yeah, everything, yeah. but. That, that reactionary thing is always going to be there there was <clears throat> when, when Tom Blake first uh, went to the Bishop Museum and, and restored some of those old Olo boards and, and, and from looking at some of those figured out to make a hollow race board he went and did one of the races in the alawai paddleboard races back then paddling and surfing really weren't that much different you know okay. like there was they would have these races he went out with this hollow paddleboard, and people laughed at him. And he won the race by a good length, and then they started going, No, ah, you can't do that, and then they tried to outlaw it. And that, that debate and that, that polarity ran through for many years. It's just, that's just how it is. Yeah. People, innovation's gonna come, surfboards are gonna change, people that are reactionary are, are usually are the ones that I just see sitting out in the lineup grumpy with sunk up to their chin on a crappy surfboard that they can't even get the first base on while there's this whole enormous playing field and 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 the intimacy you can have with the ocean by plying other waters deeper and you know as you should be moving from where like rel said you smell the bubble gum and the shore break with the kids and then by the time you leave this earth you should be out there with like mickey minos and flippy and joey cabell and all these other guys in the open ocean and at the end you should have it should be about your relationship with the ocean it's not mm-hmm. the equipment you're right I mean then we start getting into uh, uh, sectarian type almost religious stuff with boards because a lot of things I think people use surfboards as fetishes and they identify with that board and this yeah. is who I am and they're they're almost always not very uh, able surfers too sure yeah
0: yeah I could see that and a couple of people asked uh, about your brother, Bam Bam. How's he doing? He, what's John, he up to? John's
1: good. He's actually here. I'm going to be seeing him after I conclude this little chat. And uh, he has uh, some kids. They're all uh, really good baseball players. He's a good baseball coach. He's really always been. John had a scholarship for to play ball in college um, back in the early 80s. One of his sons uh, was uh, picked up by the Atlanta Braves, but he threw his arm out. Oh, and no. then he got let go. And... Uh, so John's really into that. He still surfs a lot. Oh, he does? Yeah. He yeah. lives in Huntington, though, so I cool. don't see him much.
0: It's in my neck of the woods.
1: Yeah. You know how down south people are? They're not road warriors. They always say they're going to come up, but then <laughs> they look at that 405 and then the 101, and they think about all the traffic, and they just go, oh, I'm just going to stay home.
0: Yeah. Are you building boards for him?
1: No. No? No. He has his own supply.
0: Cool. Yeah. Uh, well, let him know. A number of people asked about him. Yeah. It's on the Instagram. You could see it. Um... If you could order any board from anyone, what would you order and from whom?
1: Hmm. You know, there's um, Terry Martin's son, Josh, I believe, right? Josh Martin is making these. Un- I mean, he's unbelievable craftsman. He's like one of the guys. I've, I've and I hear this from my friend Greg Martz at Waterman's Guild too. Unbelievable craftsman. And he's got this definitely his dad's. Ability to channel some of these older designs. I think he's making some really neat hot curls. Yep. Um, so I would love to have a, a hot curl board, but either him or, or have Phil Edwards make one because I think he had worked on the one that they had at Surfer all those years too. It was mm-hmm. a Quig, like Bob Cooper, Phil Edwards thing. I think that gray, that gray thing that they used to have at Surfer. I love, I love those boards there.
0: I've ridden one of the ones that Josh made. Mm-hmm. Um, he's lately been doing some with a lot of foam. That make the actual, you know. Yeah, you
1: can make a big spine on it. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to get a 16 foot one. That 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 would maybe you be able to go out and just surf big waves that never break, you know, right. like big offshore bombies that barely stand up, and something like that. like 16 foot old board. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think the one I rode from him was like um, 10 feet, and I rode it at Rencon on like a small day. It was a ton mm-hmm. of fun. Difficult to ride and like, but super super fun. Um, I actually ordered or got a couple of knives from Josh. Yeah, he made yeah, he made um just out of like scrap wood, made a couple of knives. He's building all sorts of stuff. He's a great woodworker. He's also doing stuff with like scrap resin. That's really interesting. So um, yeah, interesting dude for sure.
1: Yeah, that's that's what's fun is people get out there and tinker with things, and uh, that's. Yeah, I, I would love to have a, a, a hot curl and being able to go out and surf big slopy kelpy waves. It yeah. wouldn't be good on a, with a fin board, and uh, I just love that kind of surfing. It it's just takes call. you back to that first thing that, you, that we all fell in love with, and the first time we crawled to our feet in the white water and stood up and, and had that vantage point of gliding over the water, standing up. I mean, now you can do it with a foil, you can do it with all these other things, but I think just trying to reclaim that, that sense of glide
0: that hot girl taps into something similar to the foil that's for sure yeah it's like an underwater you know pulse you're not riding obviously the wave face um in closing what was the last surfboard that you rode well, i would have been it was probably i don't know the
1: other day I just went longboarding at the local beach breaks here um like a 10 foot single fin longboard the waves have been small yeah and uh hoping for better things
0: cool um the actual final comment on that Instagram post was from Matt Barker simply saying thank you
1: yeah, Matthew Barker great friend of mine he was uh, one of the first people a chance getting a board for me he used to when he, he worked no for way. yeah he worked for uh, Gordon Clark for many many years it was his he uh, was kind of like the lot the heart and soul of uh, Clark Foam and the amazing customer service they had and the Aloha they had and he's He's, uh, he was an early adopter of the paddle surf vehicle and a uh, fantastic waterman and a great guy. I yeah, miss yeah. him.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Anything else you want to share?
1: Um, I would, we talk about all these like, sectarian things and, uh, with surfing, and, and I think that there's a growing sense that for me that, and it could just be my age, but the world, the state of the country and the world we live in right now, it just feels like the thirties to me, because uh, you know, I'm a historian for that period. And, um, and I just think that uh, surfing can seem almost frivolous when you're faced with the th- things that we're facing and where this can go. But I think on the other hand, we can use the surfing tribe and the kind of culture that we are at our best has a lot to teach the world. And I think that if you can use the ocean to try to find a way through that, even if it's selfish just to get through the day even just for peace of mind so that you don't end up being a howling hyena um, then then it's justifiable to do that and just remember that the ocean as long as it's still it's not gunked up with (laughs) doesn't just turn into one big sargasso sea of plastic and jellyfish and whatever else is going to gunk it up when the oceans die then it's always going to be there to heal us and and probably show show the way forward for a way that people can compete for resources but still live
0: peacefully together I agree beautiful sentiment to go out on thank you right on so I give myself to God the water dave Parmenter ladies and gentlemen thank you dave nowtro.com is dave's website if you'd like to order a board you can link to it on surf i'll have everything that he and i discussed in this episode there's also a comment section if you'd like to chime in and give dave uh share your thoughts with dave i'll make sure that he sees whatever you post there and then of course um follow his advice and explore with fins that's what i have been doing it's going to be a big part of the show moving forward through this next year and um you can do that on fanatic.com of course use the promo code podcast you'll get a first month free we'll get a kickback everybody wins i have all that information also on surf splendor podcast.com but i'm just i'm such a fan of what they're doing and i think that they um so many brands like that exist nowadays small brands and um we are the benefactors of that so really cool support the brands that are doing something cool and innovative and um and they're supporting us as well so thanks for that thank you fanatic thank you listener you can also support this show by rating and reviewing it in whatever podcast app you listen in that helps us grow and i really appreciate i just read i read every single comment that ends up there and um and i appreciate that feedback always And then the the third way is just to share the show with friends. So you can do that on social media. Follow us at Surf Splendor. And then, of course, I'll be posting images with and of Dave Parmenor. His His handle is at Aleutian Juice. So make sure to give him a follow and drop him a note in the comments, letting him know what you thought about this episode. All right, that's it for this episode of Wax On on the Surf Splendor Network hope that you're enjoying the ocean getting a couple of waves i'll be back next week with an episode of the grit with chas smith doing our gossip roundup until then get back in the ocean get a couple of waves and shred on